everyone and welcome back to the Junker George Show. As always, I'm your host Michael and today we're going to be talking about Sola Gratia. And I realize I probably butchered that pronunciation, but you'll have to forgive me for that. That's pretty much the best I can do. So, Sola Gratia, this is the first episode in our series on the five solas. And this is probably not going to be a five episode series, like I said it would last week, but uh, we'll see. I reserve the right to make it longer or shorter as I uh, see fit. So let me just give a couple of overarching statements on the five solas in general before we get started. The first is that they were written in response to Catholic doctrine and errors. So to understand them properly, we almost have to take them in light of Catholic doctrine. That is what we are going to be doing throughout this series. We're going to be looking at the five solas on their own, but then we're also going to be comparing and contrasting them to the Catholic errors that they were written to, uh, in response to. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that these are fundamental to the Christian faith. They are non-negotiables. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And th you cannot debate that or question it without falling outside of the realm of Christianity. So I think that's important that we note the five solas are indeed essential to the Christian faith. With that said, let's go ahead and look at sola gratia or grace alone. This basically just means that salvation is entirely an act of God. As Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. I love that quote because it is so true and it fits so perfectly with this sola gratia, grace alone. We do contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. We do not come to the table and say, well, God, if you do this, I'll do this. We do not barter with God. We do not try and negotiate terms of salvation. God presents the terms. He says, this must happen. And what must happen must be done by God. Because there is no way that we can do it. So salvation from our sins and from the eternal wrath of God is by God entirely. One thing to keep in mind throughout all of this is that we are saved by God, from God, for God. God saves us from his wrath for his glory. And we will get into all of that throughout this series. But that's just something that I want you guys to keep in mind while we're talking about, especially Sola Gratia. We are saved by God, from God, for God. One other thing that I would like to mention concerning grace alone is that this is one of the reasons why I'm a Calvinist. I don't believe that other views of salvation properly do justice to this doctrine. Now, that's not to say that you have to be a Calvinist to be saved. I simply believe that's the proper interpretation of Scripture. But you don't have to be a Calvinist in order to be a Christian. You can be an Arminian and be a Christian. You can be a Calvinist and be a Christian. Conversely, you can be an Arminian and be dead in your sins, or you can be a Calvinist and be dead in your sins. That's not to say that Calvinism is essential, and if you're not a Calvinist, you can't be saved. But that is to say, I believe it's the proper interpretation of Scripture. And the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, is one of the reasons why I'm convinced of that. So, salvation is entirely a gift of God. I don't think I need to prove that to you, but there are a few verses that I would like to point out anyway. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 is one of them. It reads, And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Now notice in this verse who is active and who is passive. 
Those whom he, he being God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice who is passive and who is active in this verse. Passive is the people who are being saved, the people who are being predestined, who are being called, who are being justified, who are being glorified. They are all passive in this. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be striving for holiness. That's simply to say that salvation is wrought by the hand of God, because God is the one who is active in this verse. It's not us. We are passive in this. And left to our own devices, we would not be saved. We would reject God. So, salvation is entirely a gift of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 is another one that I want to look at. This is a continuation of verse 23, actually. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that justified by his grace as a gift we are saved by the grace of god and it is a gift it has not been earned by us in any way by definition it cannot be earned but more than not being earned by us we actually earned the opposite we earned god's wrath and yet god gave us his grace my pastor used an illustration that i really liked he said that if I'm walking down the street and I meet a stranger and I give him $100, I gave him a gift. He did nothing to deserve that. But what grace is in the Bible would be closer to this. If I were walking down the street and I met the man who murdered my family and gave him $100, because that's more similar to what goes on between the sinner and Christ. Christ saves the sinner who has done everything in his or her power to go against him, to betray him. So to say that grace is undeserved is, yes, true, but it doesn't go far enough. It's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. So we are justified by his grace. It is not anything that we did that saves us. So then the last passage that I would like to look at is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And I'm sure you've heard these many times. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul here is telling us that we are saved by grace. And he, of course he says through faith, and we'll get into that in our discussion on sola fide. But right now I want to focus on the grace aspect of it. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everything that happens in salvation, and these verses tell us, including our faith, including our faith, it all happens because of the grace of God. It is given to us by the grace of God. So salvation is not a work that we wrought about in ourselves. It is not something that we accomplished. It is not that we came to the bartering table and were able to work out a deal with God. We did not negotiate for our own salvation. No. God plucked us out of damnation and said, You will be my children and I will be your God. And you will be with me forever. You will praise my name forever. So we are saved by grace alone. There's nothing that we have done to earn this. So then I want to answer the question, what is propitiation? Because I think this is vital to our understanding of grace. And propitiation is a long word, but it's really kind of simple. It's basically the idea that Jesus paid the price for our sins and appease the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus' death on the cross took on the wrath of God. When he died, he took on the wrath of God, the wrath that was supposed to be for us, the wrath that was being reserved 
for us was poured out on Christ. Now, I, I want you to imagine something for a second. I don't have children, so I can't properly imagine this, but for those of you who do, I want you to imagine something. Imagine you have an enemy, someone you despise, someone you abhor. Now, imagine just how painful that alone is. Being in the same room with that person is just horrible. But imagine that you desire to rectify that relationship, you desire to redeem it, and you desire to perfect that relationship so that you may once again, so that you may be friends. But the only way for you to do that is to take all of the wrath, all of the anger that you had stored up for that person and place it on your child. All of the anger that was justly supposed to be given to your enemy, you place on your child. All of that anger goes on your child until he or she dies. And only by that means can you rectify the relationship between yourself and your enemy. Can you truly call them friends? Imagine that for a second. This is what happened in essence with God the Father and God the Son. In order to purchase us back, in order to rectify the relationship, in order to bridge this, cav this cavern, God had to have a propitiation. God had to pour his wrath out because he is just. And that is something that we forget in modern evangelical Christianity. Now, I don't mean to always be bashing modern evangelical Christianity, but I live in America and that's just what I'm surrounded by the most, so it's an easy target. Mo but modern evangelical Christianity has created this God who is all love, no wrath, who is all mercy, no justice, and it's no God at all. It is an idol of their own making. It is something that they have put on the pedestal of their hearts. And it is not God. It is an idol. So we need to be very sure that we are believing in the proper God. And God has wrath. Make no mistake about that. The true and living God has wrath. That is the proper God. That is the one we are supposed to put our faith in. He has wrath. And this is where that we are saved by God from God comes in. And that is why propitiation is necessary. That is why we need to define this term. That is why we need to understand it. Because without it, we would not be saved. Christ went forward as a propitiation for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He appeased the wrath of God on our behalf. That wrath that was stored up for us, ready to be poured out on us, all of that anger that was going to be placed upon us, God's heavy hand of justice that was going to crush us, was instead turned on God the Son. And so the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in just three short hours while hanging upon the cross, he endured an eternity in hell. He, etern he e endured an eternity of God's damnation in just three short hours. And this is where the divinity of Christ comes in. We have to recognize that Christ is truly God, truly man. Because only God can endure the wrath of God in three hours. Only God can endure the wrath of God, period. But only a man can pray th pay the price for man's sins. And this is one of the things that I love about the gospel, because never in a hundred thousand years would any of us come up with a gospel so complex as this one. We would never think that, oh, there should be boy who is born to this virgin, who is betrothed to a carpenter, a lowly carpenter, not a king, not a ruler, a lowly carpenter. He's born to a virgin. He's brought up. He's beaten. He's ridiculed his entire life. People abandon him at the end until he goes up on the cross, truly man, truly God, and he is killed by the wrath of God. One quick note, 
We often tend to focus more on the physical pain that was done to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross, the nails driving through his hands and his feet, the spear shoved up his side, the crown of thorns upon his head. And while certainly we should note those things, they are important to the story. It is not the main focus. What we should be focusing on is the fact that the wrath of God that was reserved for us was poured out on God the Son. And so in those hours, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, hung upon the cross and he paid the price for our sins. That is propitiation. So a few verses to note on this. The first is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And it reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay. Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, Christ suffered once for sins. Note something. We do not need a continual sacrifice. Christ does not die every time we offer communion. He suffered once for sins. Christ suffered once for sins. It was Christ who paid the price. It was Christ who was the propitiation for our sins. Get this next part. The righteous for the unrighteous. Think about just the beauty of those five words. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous suffered and died for the unrighteous. The righteous suffered the wrath of God Almighty for the unrighteous. The great and perfect, most beautiful being suffered the wrath of God Almighty on behalf of dust, on behalf of creatures who are worthy of nothing more than to be trampled underfoot. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, this is so that, he, Christ, might bring us to God. This is him bridging that gap. This unbridgeable canyon called sin that separates us from God. Christ bridged that canyon. He brought us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We are brought to God by the suffering of Christ, by the death of Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. The next verse that I want to look at is John chapter 3, verse 16, a verse I know you have memorized, I'm sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ was given as a propitiation, so that we might not perish. Notice real quickly just three main points within this verse. Motive, action, and result. The motive. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. This was the motive behind the action. This was the reason that he gave his son. He loved the world. Now, this was not an obligatory love. This was not a love that was in some way forced upon God it was his own desire he said that he loved the world this was his motive that for God so loved the world that this is the action this is the action that results from this motivation he gave his only son what did he give his only son to do scripture is abundantly clear on this he gave his only son to die to death he gave his only son over to death, and a horrible, painful death, to suffer under the wrath of the Father. The son, who had known no sin, suffered under the wrath of the Father. That, and this is the end result, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We need not suffer eternity in hell. We need not be damned to hell. But we can have eternal life because of the propitiation offered by God the Son. The third verse that I want to look at is 
Romans chapter 3, verse 25. This reads, Whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Whom, this is speaking of Christ, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God the Father put forward God the Son as a propitiation by his, God the Son's, blood. The blood of Christ paid the price for our sins, and he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the propitiation for our sins. He was the lamb without blemish that needed to be sacrificed upon, upon the cross that we might be saved. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So now that we understand propitiation, I want to turn to another aspect of grace alone. And this is justification. And specifically, I want to talk about infusion versus imputation. Are we saved by infusion or imputation? And here's what I mean by that. Are we saved by Christ's righteousness plus our righteousness, which is infusion, or are we saved by Christ's righteousness plus nothing, which is imputation. Is Christ's righteousness and our righteousness blended together and presented to us so that we might be righteous, or is Christ's righteousness alone given to us so that we might be saved? And this is where I want to start talking about the Catholic doctrine that this sola gratia, grace alone, was written to combat. A common misunderstanding is that Catholics believe that we can earn heaven. It's certainly true to an extent, but it's not nuanced enough, that statement that we can earn heaven. This is more of a Pelagian view, which Catholics actually uh, condemned as heresy right along with the Reformers. So Catholics don't necessarily believe that we can earn heaven. That phrase isn't nuanced enough, as I said. Rather, they believe in infusion, which is we do a little bit and Christ does a little bit, put it together, and we are justified. Our righteousness plus Christ's righteousness. Our good deeds plus Christ's good deeds. Interestingly enough, Mormons, I believe, hold a similar view, which is basically you do as much as you can, even if that's just a, a little bit. Even if it's just the most minuscule amount, you do as much as you possibly can, and if you believe, Christ will do the rest. But it's still this idea of infusion. Christ's righteousness plus our righteousness put together, and we are justified. This is not biblical. It is heresy, and I will not treat this view with respect. I have nothing but contempt for this view, and we're going to get to another view later that I will say the same on, but that's just a heads up. Catholics do believe in infusion, and this is heresy. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really quickly, just to kind of illustrate how important the gospel is, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that word accursed, it's not really deep enough to grasp the meaning of that verse. It's literally anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be damned to an eternity in hell, cast into the fire for all eternity. This is how important the true gospel is. That if you distort it and you knowingly and willingly 
and I'm going to correct myself, accidentally, if you believe a different gospel, you are not saved. And then if you go and you promote that different gospel to others, you will be damned to hell for all of eternity. Let him be damned, Paul writes. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So that is how important this gospel is. So on this note of imputation versus infusion, let's look at Zechariah 3, 4. And I just want to note that this truly is a matter of Christian versus non-Christian. This is not one Christian denomination and another Christian denomination. This is Christian versus non-Christian. This is true right doctrine versus heresy. So Zechariah 3, 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You might be saying, Michael, what on earth does this have to do with anything? Look at the garments. They are symbolic of righteousness and wickedness. Remove the filthy garments from him. The filthy garments were taken away. And the angel said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. The filthy garments are symbolic of wickedness and of wrong deeds, of sin, the sin that corrupts. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You will be given pure clothing. You will be clothed in righteousness. Note what it says. You will be given pure vestments. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Not, we will take some of your garments, mix it with some of ours, and it will be given to you, and you will be pure. No, you will be clothed with pure vestments. You will be given pure vestments. They will not be mixed with your old ones. So then, the next verse is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Note here, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and the last line, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We will exult and greatly rejoice in the Lord because he has clothed us in the garments of salvation. Not we have clothed us in the garments of salvation, but rather that Christ has clothed us in the garments of salvation. The next verse that I want to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That was kind of confusing, but let me just make it simple. Christ became sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin. The perfect righteous one became sin for our sake, so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. It might be given to us. We might become the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, the righteousness of God. It is not our righteousness fused together with Christ's righteousness. It is the righteousness of God that we become, that we are clothed in, that we are given. Last verse on this is Philippians Chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Now that last part is very important, those last five words. That comes from the law. It means that the righteousness that comes from the law is not enough because we cannot be righteous by the law's standard. Only one 
has ever been perfectly righteous in the law's standards, by the law's standards, and that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because there is no righteousness that comes from the law. We cannot be given righteousness from the law. We cannot achieve righteousness from the law. But, this is in contrast here, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is instrumental here. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For now, let's just focus on the righteousness that is given to us. We are given righteousness and it comes from God, not from us, and certainly not from works of the law. So then, now that we have answered this question of infusion versus imputation, I want to answer a couple of questions. A couple of, well, one question really and one objection. So one question that is often brought up is how can a holy God declare sinners to be just? How is this possible? If God is holy and God is just and we know he is, how can he declare us to be just and be holy and be righteous? This doesn't make sense. How can he, better yet, how can he punish Christ for our sins if Christ was perfect? If God is just, how can he punish the, the unguilty for the guilty on behalf of the guilty? And the answer is very simple. God is both just and the justifier. He is holy, so therefore he must punish sin, but he is merciful, and he does not desire that we should perish in our sins. Thus, he provided a way of escape. He provided a means by which we might be saved. And this goes right along with these two ideas of propitiation and infusion, or excuse me, imputation. The idea that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. And then imputation which is the idea that Christ's righteousness was given to us. It is not our righteousness. Side note, by the way, and I know I've said this, I think it was in one of the episodes on worship, it is not enough, would not have been enough, for Christ to have simply paid the price for our sins, because that would have gotten us back to ground one, uh, square one, sorry, ground zero. This would have been still infinitely more than we deserved, but it wouldn't have been enough because we would still have to do something good, earn salvation, so that we might be saved. So while this still, again, would have been infinitely more than we deserved, it wouldn't have been enough. It wouldn't have been enough. Just a quick side note. So again, God is both the just and the justifier. He took the punishment for our sins and laid it on Christ. This punishment that was supposed to be given to us was laid on Christ. And look at how beautifully this satisfies both God's justice and his righteousness. Or, excuse me, his uh, mercy. This satisfies both his justice and his mercy because justice demands that sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for. There is no way you can get around that fact. Sin must be paid for. And so in this act of laying the wrath of God Almighty on God the Son, we see that God the Father's justice is satisfied. The Gettys wrote in their wonderful hymn in Christ Alone, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This is God's justice, that it was poured out on Christ. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ because there must be a, there, there must be a propitiation, there must be a payment for sins. Because God is just, he cannot just turn a blind eye. 
but he is also merciful. And so he does not desire that any should perish, First Peter tells us. Now, let me just make a quick note that does not promote universalism in any way, shape, or form. It can be used to promote that. It's twisted to mean that. That's not what it says. That's not what it promotes. If you are curious about it, I would recommend getting a great commentary, sitting down, studying it in context, because context changes it. So, all of that said, God's justice is satisfied, and his mercy is satisfied. Because, again, going back to John 3.16, God so loved the world, he wanted to bring a portion of people up to be with him and to glorify him, to praise him, to enjoy his presence forever. The only way to do that was to ensure that someone was punished on their behalf. And so Christ willingly steps in and he says, I will do it. I will go. I will be punished on their behalf. So a couple of verses that I want to look at on this. Romans chapter 3 verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If we have faith in Jesus, we will be saved because Christ went willingly to the cross, willingly took on the punishment for our sins. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, as we read earlier. He who knew no sin became sin. And thus, God was able to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verse 7 is the next verse that I would like to look at. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the mercy that is shown to us. We are justified by his grace. We are justified by the grace of God. I cannot stress that enough. And the only way this is possible is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, note that, we are made just because of the blood of Christ. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We have been declared justified. And this is the picture of a courtroom. There's a judge in a courtroom, and a guilty man comes before him, and the judge says, someone else has paid the price. You are declared just. You are declared justified. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We will be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. Believers, Christians, are exempt from condemnation because the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, has already fallen upon God the Son. And it's a beautiful reality when you stop to think about it. One that is often sadly overlooked by many of us today because we don't truly understand the wrath of God today. We don't truly understand that God is just, that he is holy, and that he must punish sin. We don't truly understand that. A great book, if you're looking for some resources on the holiness of God, is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Great book, wonderful book. I would highly recommend it if you're seeking to more understand the holiness and justice of God. So moving on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 and such were some of you, this is after Paul's famous list of sins, people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you, but, and this has got to be one of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible, but. It holds it in contrast. It holds what was previously said in contrast to what will uh, be said in the following lines. What was previously said is being held in contrast to what is going to be said. Such were some of you, and this is again the list of sins, the list of people who will not enter the kingdom of God, identified by their sin. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. Washed, sanctified, justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood, by his death, by his propitiation for our sins, by his imputation of righteousness. And it is critical that we understand that. And by the Spirit of our God, who applies salvation to the believer. That is another thing that we must recognize. The Spirit of God applies salvation to the believer. So then, moving on to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And again, I think we've actually already read this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have become the righteousness of God because the one who knew no sin was made to know sin to become sin. Jesus Christ took on the curse of sin on our behalf. And so because of that, we have become the righteousness of God. Beautiful, beautiful reality. So that is the question that I, that I wanted to answer. How can a holy God declare sinners to be just? It is only by grace and by the fact that the blood of Christ was spilt on our behalf. So then the objection. There's a common objection to this doctrine of propitiation. There's a common objection to it, which is, isn't this cosmic child abuse? It would be cosmic child abuse for God to pour his wrath out upon his son. And I told, I said it earlier, I'm coming back to the to this language of contempt and not having respect for this opinion. I do not have any respect for anyone who holds this opinion when it comes to theology. I do not have any respect for this opinion at all. I hold it in contempt. It is heresy, and I will treat it as such. It is an offense to the gospel. It is offensive to the gospel, and it is offensive to me. John Calvin once said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that the word of God was attacked and did nothing. I, This applies to me. I would be a coward if I saw that this objection was raised and I did not speak to it. So, in the interest of defending the gospel, defending the scriptures, defending Christ and him crucified, I'm going to answer this objection. But first, I just want to make a couple of notes. If I respect this, and if I look at this as just a misunderstanding or another way of understanding the gospel, I have condoned heresy. Because that's what this is. This is heresy. And I will get, on, I will get to that in a minute. This is heresy. So if I condone it and I look at it as just another way of understanding the gospel. I myself have fallen into this trap of heresy because I condone it. And I say, yeah, that's that's understandable. That's respectable. I can see how you would come to that conclusion. It is entirely possible that it would be cosmic child abuse. I just happen to disagree. It's not like many things in the Christian faith. There are many areas in which I may disagree. I am not a dispensationalist. I'm not an Arminian. I do not believe in infant baptism. But none of these things will stop me from looking at those who believe them and calling them my brother. Because these are not examples of heresy. They are simply examples of doctrines that I disagree with. But, again, I can see how you would come to that conclusion in light of the canon of Scripture. I just happen to disagree. I think that we can more logically come to a different conclusion. This is different. The idea that it would be cosmic child abuse for God to pour out his wrath on his son. So, I cannot condone this and I will not respect it because if I do, I have fallen into that trap of heresy myself. 
Now let's look at if it is true. If it is true that this is cosmic child abuse, and we're getting into why this is heresy. If it is true, then three things can be implied. Number one, God is a liar. We have been told over and over again in scriptures, as we've seen throughout this episode, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He was put to death on our behalf so that we might live. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And if it's true that this would be cosmic child abuse, and God is perfect so he cannot commit cosmic child abuse, this would be false and it would make God a liar. Which, in turn, would make him just as corrupt as you and I, and if he's just as corrupt as you and I, he is no God at all. And what in the world are we doing here? We must eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is absolutely no point in any of this if God is as corrupt as we are. Because there is nothing that would stop him from destroying the earth right now by a global flood, which we all know he promised not to do. If God is a liar, I would say go out, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. God is not a liar. The, thir- the second thing that would have to be, would be implied if this were true. There is no way to heaven. We've already seen that we can't earn it. There's no way that we can earn it because we cannot keep the law. So if Christ was not put forward as a propitiation for our sins, there is no way to heaven. And we are going to fall under God's condemnation no matter what. Which, by the way, is hypocritical if the first thing that can be implied is true. That God is a liar. It would be hypocritical for him to condemn us to hell because he is as corrupt as we are. But he's an extremely powerful being in that case, and so there would be nothing that we can do about it. So there is no way to heaven if Christ was not put forward as a propitiation for our sins. And again, I would tell you, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then the third thing is that God's wrath remains on us even now. And again, we are to be pitied most of all peoples because we are living a lie. We are living uh, in an illusion. If Christ was not put forward as a propitiation for our sins, we are living a lie. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why? Because if Christ was not put forward as a propitiation for our sins, God is a liar. There is no way to heaven and his wrath still remains on us even now. And he is just dangling us above the flames, ready to cast us into hell. So, that is why this is heresy. Because we would all say that God cannot lie. There is indeed a way to heaven. And as believers, God's wrath does not remain on us. So, let's look at this. Actually, one more thing that I want to say. That line of In Christ Alone that I referenced earlier, when the Gettys recorded that and released it, there was a church denomination that said, contacted them and said, will you change this verse? For the very reason that they thought it was cosmic child abuse for the wrath of God to be poured out on Christ. They said, this is cosmic child abuse and we don't believe it, so will you please change this verse? The Gettys said, no. This is how we wrote the song. This is pure, proper doctrine. This is sound doctrine. We will leave it as it is. And think about what beautiful, what beautiful truths are represented in that line. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Think about that. The wrath of God was satisfied. Okay, so there are three points that I want to make to this objection, and I realize that I'm coming up on 50 minutes, so I will try and make this quick. First, Christ went willingly. When you think of child abuse, you think of a father or mother or any authority figure beating his or her child for no reason. 
and this child is unwillingly subjected to this torture. Christ went willingly. And I'll point out a couple of verses to back that up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 reads, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we think, again, of, of child abuse, we think of an authority figure beating their child, and this child is unwillingly subjected to it. This child is forced into it. This is not what happened at the cross. Christ went willingly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He became obedient. He said, okay, you want to do this, to buy back a people, okay, I will become obedient, I will do this. This will fall on me. Next is Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as Christ wills, but as God the Father wills. If it be possible, let this pass cup from me. Let this cup pass from me, excuse me. <laughs> Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ went willingly. John 18, verses 3 through 8 reads... So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, now just note that right there, he knew what was going to happen, came forward anyway. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Just by declaring, I am he, the soldiers were knocked to the ground. And yet Jesus said, Get up, take me, let these men go, let my disciples go. He went willingly. And that is something that you will not see in any case of child abuse. The second thing that I want to bring up is that the father loves the son. And again, I realize I'm going kind of long, so I will try to make this quick. The father loves the son. John chapter 3, verse 35. The f it says these words, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will, sh will he show him, so that you may marvel. Matthew 12, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then Matthew three seventeen, the last verse on this uh, point. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father loves God the Son. And that is not something you see in child abuse. There is no love in the action of child abuse. This is not child abuse. I can't stress this enough. God the Father loves God the Son. And that is not a sign of child abuse. That is not something that you would see in child abuse. So then the last point that I would like to make to this objection is Christ is co-equal with the Father. Something that you see in child abuse is that it's always the weaker being taken advantage of and beaten by the stronger. But that's not something you see here. Christ, who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father subjected himself willingly to the wrath of the Father, there was no 
forced subjection there. Christ is not the weaker of the two. He is not being beat up on by the Father. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. I'll make this quick. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. God the Son has been with God the Father from the, be- from the very beginning. And notice verse 30. I was daily his delight. Moving on again, just trying to move quickly. John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, a passage I'm sure you've all heard many times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God the Father is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Son. And the last scripture that I will point to to back this up is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for s- purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These passages make it abundantly clear that God the Father and God the Son are co-equal and co-eternal. This is not a mark of child abuse. None of these are. The fact that Christ subjected himself willingly, the fact that the Father loves the Son, and the fact that the Son is co-equal with God the Father, none of these are marks of cosmic child abuse in any way. So, I'll wrap this up. Just to kind of sum up a little bit, salvation is entirely an act of God. From the payment for sins to the justification that is given to us, salvation is entirely an act of God. And there was no, not a moment in which child abuse took place in the scriptures or in the act of salvation. So, sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Grace alone. There is nothing else on earth that we could possibly be saved by. And that is a, an amazing reality. Because if there were a way to earn heaven, none of us could do it. None of us could do it. We are saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. Thank you all for listening to the Junker George Show. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please like subscribe, follow, share this with friends and family. All of that would be greatly appreciated. Next week, we will be moving on to Sola Fide, or faith alone. We've heard that we are saved by grace alone, so next we will be talking about faith alone. See you then. God bless.